I'm praying about, maybe going to the Beatitudes because they are a parallel to the book of James. And this morning we're going to address two last practical points. And as I've said before, as Romans is to doctrine, James is to practical application. And the last two things that we're going to focus on this morning are really essentials to our Christian walk, if you will, and lifestyle. It really kind of defines us as a people. And the two last things James is going to leave us with is a discussion of integrity and prayer. Integrity and prayer. And I believe that James saved the best for last. And he wants to have us keep these things in the forefront of our minds, being people of integrity and being people of prayer, because they are essential to our Christian walk. Amen? So what we're going to do today is look at the last verses of James chapter 5, verses 12 to 20. And what we'll do is we'll go through verse 12 first, because it's kind of its own entity, and then we'll jump into the rest of the verses in James and look at them in detail so that we leave with a better understanding of what he's saying here. So James 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All, unfortunately, because of our sin nature, we are prone to lying, whether it be a half-truth, mistruth, untruth, exaggeration, or whatever form you want to put it in. We can be prone to lying in our sin nature. And it's interesting that one of the big ten is that thou shalt not bear false witness. And all throughout the scriptures you will see about do not lie, do not give false testimony, truthfulness, and honesty. And, <clears throat> and throughout biblical history, Listen carefully. The swearing of oaths became a practice and part of the cultures to really hold people accountable to the agreements that they made. For example, Abraham, after he defeated the, the kings of Sodom and all that, would give him some plunder and he made an oath not to take it because he wouldn't touch anything that wasn't given to him by the Lord. Abraham made an oath with Abimelech. Esau made an oath with Jacob when he gave up his birthright, David with Jonathan, and you could go on and on through the scriptures to see where oaths were taken. And listen carefully, these oaths of vow were often made as unto the Lord with the understanding if they failed to keep them, it would bring God's judgment upon them. All right? And please understand, the taking of oaths was not a, a, a bad thing because they didn't have contracts at that time. So they needed something to make sure that both parties who made this agreement would stand on what they said. And the problem is um, they called God to witness to the truth of their promise. And by doing this, they also called upon them God's judgment if they defaulted from that promise or oath. And again, the underlying reason is because a man's sinfulness, and we are prone to what? Breaking these oaths, breaking these vows, because usually we're unwilling to do it, or it benefits us not to do it and hurts somebody else when we don't. So because of our nature, God actually puts this in the Levitical law that we are to keep these oaths and promises. Listen to Moses, uh, Moses Numbers 30, verse 1 and 2. Man's. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break it. His word, uh, break his word, but must do everything that he says. So he's saying the reason we take this vow before the Lord is so that we'll keep what we say and understand that if we don't, we could undercome the Lord's discipline or judgment. Therefore, listen, how does this passage relate to what we're talking about in James this morning? Well, it's really simple, and I really don't want to make it complicated, okay? And it comes down to this. As born-again believers, as new creations in Christ, we are supposed to emulate the embodiment of truthfulness who is Jesus Christ. We are supposed to be people of integrity and truthfulness because truth is of God. And if you study the scriptures, it said, you know who the father of lies is? It's the devil. So when we lie and do untruths or don't live with integrity or honesty, we're emulating the evil one and we're not emulating the Savior. Amen? Therefore, we're called to be people of integrity. Our yes should be yes and our no should be no. With no need to make a vow or an oath because when we give our word, or we say something, we should follow through with it because of who we are in Christ. Amen? And when we don't, when we don't tell the truth, right, 
what do we do? We mar the reputation of the Lord. We mar our own reputation. And why would that other person want to believe the gospel if we're not standing and living a life for Christ and being honest and truthful with them? Amen? So more than anybody, as ambassadors of Christ, we are supposed to walk in honesty, integrity, and truthfulness. And even Jesus reiterates this in Matthew 5, 34 to 37. He says this, Again you have heard, heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the law the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or at the Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to simply say is yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. In other words, it says, just say yes, just say no, and please, as we've heard, um, we probably all said at some point, oh, I swear to God, I swear to God, I swear to God. It's blasphemy. Don't swear on the name of the Lord. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. How many people say his name like, yes, like it's supposed to, you know, confirm their covenant. If they only knew that when they do that, they're bound to what they say. So be careful. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, because of who we are in Christ. And that people will come to say, when that man or woman says yes, it's yes. When they say no, and this is how integrity is defined. The quality of being honest, having strong moral principles, moral uprightness. Amen? Our word must be our bond and should be spoken with honest intention and carried through with diligence for the other person, for our reputation, and the reputation of our Lord. Amen? And James concludes his statement here with a little warning that if we're not people of integrity, if we're not honest and upright in our dealings with others, listen to this, we'll be disciplined by the Lord. Again, it reads this, all you need to say is a simple yes or no so that you won't fall under the judgment. Guys, as parents, do we not discipline our children if they lie or are untruthful? So how much more the Father of truth may discipline us if we're not honest in how we conduct our lives and in what we say. And I believe um, Ephesians 4, 22 to 25 gives a great summary. Listen to what it says. Ephesians 4, 22 to 25. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by his deceitful desires. So when we walked in untruths or half-truths or mistruths or lies, put that away to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self, to be created like God in true righteousness and holiness. Ready? Verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. It's the put off and put on mentality that we are to speak truthfully in how we conduct our affairs, whether it's business, personal, etc., to be honest and people of integrity. All right, so we got it? We're to be people of integrity, our yes be yes, our no, no. And let me tell you something. We're blessed because I could go all around the room. But um, Antoinette, I know when she talks to me, a yes is a yes and no is a no. And, and you know that Rich and I are very good friends? Well, if I ask this man something and he says yes, I don't even have to ask him again. It's going to get done. And when he says no, I know he means it. I don't have to say, Richie, please, Richie, please, really, what do you mean? No is no, yes is yes. But it's wonderful, and I know I could go around this room. There's so much, the integrity that people will be honest and truthful. Amen? All right, so with that said, let's look at this, finish up with the last vital instruction that James gives us in his letter. And I think it's so important that James leaves us with a call to be people of prayer. Oh, church, it's the lifeblood of what we do. It's our communion with the Almighty. Listen to, uh, go to chapter 5. Let's read verses 13 to 20, then we'll break it down. It says, Is anyone of, among you in trouble? Let them what? Pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any among you sick? In the name of the Lord. Boy, I have a new, uh, pretty detailed teaching about that. And the prayer ready, offered in faith, will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth 
and someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And so ends the book of James. Family, again, I truly believe that prayer is the lifeblood of the church. We need to be a praying people. Throughout the scriptures, we see men and women of God who genuinely had a relationship with the Lord, who desired that, a deeper relationship with the Lord. They were people of prayer. Look at Abraham. Look at Jacob. Look at Moses. Read the Psalms of David. If they are not a cry out of his heart in prayer, look at some of the... Um, oh, Lord, help me. Oh, forgive me. Penina's ad- adversary that gave birth out to God. Hannah, yes, thank you. Hannah was crying out, crying out to God in prayer, and the Lord answered her prayer. When we genuinely desire a deeper relationship with the Lord, we will be people of prayer, amen? Church, listen, who are the ones we're supposed to follow? Jesus. Jesus was a man of prayer. Please read the Gospels. Jesus prayed about decisions. He went to his Father. It was a vital and integral part of his life to commune with his Father. And if the Son of God had to go to prayer and be with his Father, how much more we, his disciples, should be people of prayer. Amen? Praise the Lord. And listen, James, James practiced what he preached. James was a man of prayer. Listen to what this man Eusebius wrote. He was a bishop, an exegete, and a historian, and he wrote about the first century church. Listen to how he described James. James prayed so much that his knees became as hard as a camel's. So are you camel-kneed or soft-kneed? as a prayer warrior. So that's the kind of prayer warriors you should be, crying out to God that our knees become calloused. And even you ladies, that someone say, Wait, what's wrong with your knees? I'm a prayer warrior. <laughs> Amen? Family, if we truly love the Lord and hold that relationship dear, we will seek God in prayer. We'll want to commune with Him. We'll want to be with Him. Amen? And then in James um, 13 to 20, he gives us, Uh, four life situations where we really need to seek after God. Go to verse 13a again. It says, is any among you in trouble? Let them pray. Let them pray. Church, we know on this side of eternity, we're going to have troubles. Oh, great. Jesus even told us. What did he say? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. There's going to be troubles. And if anybody's lived past age three, you know that we have troubles in the world. Yes? Tests, trials, etc. Right? So let me ask you, when you find yourself in the mix, whether it's a situational thing or it's with another, a difficult person, an adversary, someone who's aggressive, do we go to our knees and pray? Do we go to our knees and pray? Or do we put ourselves, our responses, in one of these following categories, one or many of these following categories, which are the wrong responses? So let's look at the wrong responses first. Do we worry and fret and spew pessimistic statements? Oh, poor me. Oh, what am I going to do instead of going to prayer, right? Do we desire revenge against those who are contributing to the situation? Oof. Lord God, listen, my boss is really giving me a hard time. Can you strike him with lightning? No, we're not supposed to pray like that, all right? Do we get angry at God for allowing this to happen in our lives? I know of people who have turned away, won't come to church because they've had some difficulties in their life, and they won't come back to church. It's foolish. They should be running to the fellowship and running to blow our witness by blowing our cork. Or do we take that anger and internalize and become depressed and discouraged and it eats away at our insides? Do we grumble and murmur and get a chip on our shoulder? You ever see somebody with a chip? They're so angry, you, don't even, you, you can just feel it coming off of them. Do we, and this is probably the worst. Do we snap and take it out on those close ones have really nothing to do with the situation? Eyes closed, altars open. I think we could all end up here because all of us have done one or many of these things in our lives, yes? Come on now. So when we face difficult situations or people, these are the ways not to respond. But then James will tell us how we should approach these situations in prayer. First of all, why do people neglect prayer? Let me give you some instances here. Because they neglect it as an individual or a church. They don't practice it's not a spiritual discipline in their life to seek the lord in prayer so they don't go to prayer when something happens and as god's people it should be the first thing we do is run to the lord in prayer amen listen to what jesus says he invites us he says come to me 
All you are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find what? Rest for your souls. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, what? By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the what? Peace of God, which transcends all understandings, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He's inviting us to come. Make it part of your individual life. It should be part of our church life that we come to Him in prayer. And you, if there's anybody who doesn't have a problem in this church with something, with illness, with family, God bless you. Because I think the other rest of us are telling the truth. So since we're talking about honesty and integrity, all of us deal with these situations. So why aren't we at our Savior's feet, at our Father's feet? Because He's made the way for us to go into the throne room, to go to Him in prayer. Second reason people don't pray is out of pride and arrogance. I can handle it. I got it covered. I got these finances. I got the best doctors in the world. And that may all be true. But there are some situations that you're not going to buy your way out of, walk your way out of, doctor your way out of. You need to go to the King of kings and Lord of lords and pray to him. Let him be the one who provides the sufficiency. Amen? And then sometimes, listen, we feel ashamed, ashamed, because the trouble we find ourselves in is by our own doing. So we feel ashamed. And I have, God knows it anyway. He's omniscient. He knows what we've done. No matter what the sin, no matter what the stupid choice or decision, He knows. And instead of running away from the fellowship and running away from God, run to Him. He's waiting for you with open arms to come as His child and to talk to Him. So whatever the situation is, Go to him. Don't be ashamed. Listen to what Isaiah says. This is such a beautiful passage of Scripture. Come now. This is the Lord speaking. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red as crimson. They shall be like wool. He's saying, no matter what you've done, come, repent, and you'll find forgiveness. You'll find peace and rest for your soul. So why do we avoid going? So let's turn the tables now and look at reasons why we should seek God. And verse 13a gives us, starts us off. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Family, first and foremost, we pray because he wants us to come to him. If my kids are in trouble, I want my door to be open so they can come and talk to me and say, Dad, or they usually go to Mom. I'm not that hard, but they go to Mom, Right? They come to their parents and they talk to us about the situation. And you know what? I'm really blessed with my wife. And my kids, she's not going to, you know, then she easily breaks it to me. All right? You know how it goes, guys, right? But uh, he wants us to come. No, regardless of what the trouble is, we can come to our Heavenly Father. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He can do all things. And as I have, and I said before, it's in the song, even the impossible is possible for him. Why not come to your heavenly Father? He's waiting. He's saying, child, come. Why are you trying to run that way? Why are you trying to run that way? Do it in your own strength when I'm here as your Father and want to see you through this. Amen? When, um, and I have down here, he can take the ashes and make something beautiful. Amen? No matter what we've been through, no matter what trouble we've been in, he can take that. And I saw it Thursday night where a kid who was a heroin dealer in jail, God took and has made a missionary that is on fire, seeing, I would say, hundreds of lives of other religions, not even knowing Christ, Hindus, Muslims coming to faith. So God can take the ashes and make something beautiful. And when Paul was going through his thing and he had that thorn in the flesh, listen to what he said. But he said to me, this is God speaking, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How are we strong? 
in the power of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that people will see this. I believe Paul was not a big man. I believe he's a, a frail-looking guy, that this weak, beat-up vessel had an oration through the Holy Spirit and the power of God within him to do things, and it brings glory and honor to him and the name of our Lord. Amen? Praise God. And this actually leads to the second reason why we should seek him, and that we're demonstrating our humility and a complete dependence on him. He doesn't want us to be prideful. We can do it on our own. He wants us to come and be totally dependent on him. Amen? So by going to him in prayer, we're saying, Father, I can't do this. I just can't. So I need you. I need the power of your spirit to do this. Amen? And the third, we need to seek him wisdom for a perspective of why we're going through this difficulty. Lord, what are you working to do in me and through me that I'm going through this? Spiritual fruit development? Are you trying to develop one of the fruits in me, Lord God? Is it being that you want me to minister to somebody else? So I'll go through vicarious suffering so I can go through vicarious empathy and minister to somebody else who's going through the same situation. Is it discipline out of the love of God that he's disciplining us, letting us go through this so we get back on the right track, amen? Or is it to help us just to learn to trust him and to persevere and to trust him? And when we do persevere through these things, that relationship becomes deeper and deeper because we get to know him more as we go through these struggles and we see his hand is work. Don't you want to know him more? Yeah. Holy Lord, when we get to heaven, oh, it's going to be wonderful to see him as he is and to learn more and more of him throughout eternity. Praise God. And um, so the bottom line is when we find ourselves in times of, I'll sing it for you, when we find ourselves in times of trouble, don't go to Mother Mary. She can't do anything. Go to Father God, because he can do all things, right? Nothing is impossible for him. Amen? How is that? Little Beatles? All right. For us who are old enough, we know who the Beatles are. I asked kids in school who were in 11th grade, who are the Beatles? Who? Oh, Lord, I know I'm getting older. All right, so let's go on to James uh, 13b. It says, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Family, listen carefully. Songs of praise and worship are wonderful forms of prayer. Amen? They're a wonderful thing for anything. We're coming in thankfulness to thank Him for our salvation, to thank Him for how He blesses us, what He's doing in our lives, and to just ready exalt Him for who He is. Exalt Him for who He is. Please take some time and just meditate on who God is. And I've said it to you as a science person. Think of the universe, how vast. Who is this being that's spoken into existence? Study the human body right down to the cellular level. Who are you? Or just watch some of the, hist uh, the uh, wildlife channels, all the organisms that are on the face of the earth. And God created every one of them with a specific niche to fill that makes the ecosystem work perfectly. Who is this God? Amen? We exalt him for who he is. Praise God. Ooh. Family, praise and worship is the epitome of prayer in that it exalts God. And we thank him for all that he's done in our lives. Amen? I believe one of the greatest pleasures to our Heavenly Father is when we come and thank him. Thank him for all that he's done. Begin with just being saved. Do you know the alternative? We do know the alternative. The fires of hell for eternity. And he sent his son to die for us so we could have fellowship with him and not go into that hideous place. Praise the Lord. When we come and thank Him and just praise Him for who He is, if we as parents love when our kids say, thank you, thank you, and, or, or give us accolades, we feel wonderful. We get pumped up. How much more our Heavenly Father when we as His children come and thank Him and don't take all His blessings for granted? That's why our worship time, focus on Him. I love what you said, Sal, and I'm getting to it. It's not about the musicians or the singers. It's about coming to thank him and worship him. Amen? And listen, this shouldn't just be a practice on an individual level that we worship and praise him, but on a church level also. Listen to Ephesians 5, 19 and 20. It says this. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God and Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Colossians 3, 16 and 17, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with a gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We come together to worship him. We come together to praise him, to exalt him. Amen. And listen carefully. We enter into song not to create a mood. Do you hear me? Our congregational time of praise and worship to God and exalt him for who he is, for he alone is worthy. Now I'm going to go in the hot seat so you can yell at me later, hon. We don't need light shows, smoke machines, and screaming instrumentals to tickle our emotions. Ready? If we truly desire to simply enter into communion with him to thank him and exalt him for all he has done and because of who he is. The externals should not influence the internal. We come to praise him and worship him and thank him. And I don't care, in the Great Awakening, he had fire and brimstone preaching and the singing of old hymns. And thousands got saved and not just got saved, lived godly lives. It's not the music. It's not the singers. We should be coming as Christians with a desire to thank Him, with a desire to worship Him, just for who He is. And if the music is wonderful, praise the Lord. If the singers are wonderful, praise the Lord. But it's a heart issue. And you, if someone has to darken a facility, play flashing lights and smoke and mirrors to get people in the mood to worship, they're doing it for the wrong reason. It's not emotion. It's because we love him and he, what he's done for us. Amen? Forgive me. I'm on fire. Oof. i got to calm down. And I have down here, I truly believe that some also tickle the ears with preaching and others tickle the emotions for worship. Excuse me. All right, let's go on and see that we should also seek the Lord in times of sickness. This is where it gets a little interesting. In verse 14, we're given instructions about seeking the Lord during times of personal sickness. And James goes on with these words. Is anyone among you sick? And of course, any of us who are human know, is anyone you, among you sick? Yeah, we've all been sick, all right? We've all realized. And as I studied, I really came to understand that these ones that he's talking about are those who are bedridden. They're shut-ins. These were the sick he was talking about, okay? It's not like if you come to the church and, you know, there's an ailment, but these are the ones who couldn't get out of their houses and needed to be prayed for, all right? So... What should they do in this situation? The answer, let them call the elders of the church. And the elders were the spiritually mature men of the church. And we can read about the qualifications for elders. And those elders were supposed to go to the house of the individual. And what they were supposed to do, as we'll see, is pray over them. So the men of God were supposed to go and pray over them. And they were called to one family. We must understand, too, if you look at what it says, it says to pray. That's the verb. That's why they were going. They were going to pray over the, the person who was ill, shut in, or bedridden. Okay? So the fundamental was to pray. And it describes that procedure again of, of the elders going over, placing their hands over the person, and praying. The second thing they were supposed to do was anoint them with oil. And why? Because back in those days, oil was a soothing agent. So they would, it would actually mean because it was a soothing agent. Okay? And also we know as New Testament believers that oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So we, they would anoint with oil and rub down. And now we understand today as a symbol of the Holy Spirit that it's only through the power of God that this person was going to be healed. It was impossible for those men. There was nothing in the oil. It was up to the Lord to heal them. Amen? Through the Holy Spirit. That's why if you, we go on, it says, pray in the name of the Lord. It wasn't because of the elders. It was in the name of the authority of Jesus Christ that the person would be healed. The oil meant nothing. The men meant nothing. It was the power of God through the Holy Spirit that was going to heal this person. So the elders came, and here's where it gets interesting. Offered their prayer of faith, the prayer of faith. Faith in the power of Jesus Christ. Faith that healed the blind man. Faith that when the woman who had bled for so many years came and touched the Lord's cloak, she was healed. Faith that when Peter and John said, get up in the name of Jesus and walk, healed the beggar, the crippled beggar. That kind of faith. Faith is believing, truly believing that he is who he is and can do all that he says he can do, which is everything. Amen? That is faith, trusting God. 
It points to a very specific type of prayer. In the Greek, it's eukre. And what it means, it's almost, it, it, not almost, it's a covenant that God gives them that he's going to heal that person. Do you understand? It's only used three times in the New Testament. All the other times for prayer, it's a different word. So it's only used three times in the New Testament. It's E-U-C-H-E, right? The Greek word. I know, Liz, you want to write that down. All right, it's a covenant. And it's, it's a specific type of prayer of special insight and conviction that God was absolutely going to heal that person. The person knew. This prayer of faith cannot be prayed according to our own will or desires. It must be a prompting by God, by the Holy Spirit, to go and pray over the sick person with the absolute assurance the person's going to get well. So James goes on and states that the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. That's a pretty bold statement, yes? And will lift him up. It is these cases that when the Lord prompts those to intercede, must be true, all right? He, will, he, the Lord, will give the absolute assurance that the person who's sick will get well. Amen? Do we understand that? And let me give you an example. Listen to 2 Kings 20, 1 to 5. If you want to turn there, please do. 2 Kings 20, verse 1 to 5. It's after 1 Kings and before Chronicles. Listen to what it says. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. Oh, thank you, prophet. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithful and with wholehearted devotion and done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, look at this, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer, seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. Amen? Family, for purposes known to God and God only, he chooses who to heal and who not to heal. The fact that we grow old and die attests to this fact that sooner or later these bodies will give out. But may I give you an aside? So what? Guess what? You leave this jar of clay, and guess where you are? You're in the presence of the Savior if you're a Christian. Amen? Do the people left behind mourn? Is Judy mourning? Is, uh, is Jim's family mourning that this godly man has gone home to be with the Lord? Yes, they mourn because they miss him, but I know deep down they're rejoicing because he's where? In the presence of a Savior, and they will see him again because they believe also. So don't be afraid. And does this mean we're not supposed to pray for people? Absolutely not. Weak Holy Spirit, and we pray, praying that God will turn his ear to our cry and the ear to the cry of the person being anointed and will heal them and work in that situation. Right now, yesterday was my brother, is eight years uh, since he's been diagnosed with cancer, he's still alive. And I spoke to him yesterday, and I keep telling him, Jim, we're praying for you. How many times? Three, four or five times, he should have been dead. And we interceded in prayer, and God heard our prayer and has kept him alive, I really believe, so that he will humble himself and come to faith. Amen? But the last time, the doctor said, doctor told him, and his wife texted my wife and said, uh, the doctor said he should have had a severe stroke or been dead. We don't know how he made it through this. God's grace. Amen? So we pray. We never give up praying and interceding for others. And we must look carefully at what James writes next, and it's this. Very careful. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Family, don't miss the word, if, if. And realize there is no admonishment that some illness, some sickness came because of sin. Do you hear me? We have to understand that Scripture does not teach that all sickness is because of somebody's personal sin. Do you hear me? Oh, he must have done something really bad to get that. That's not true. Listen to uh, John 9, 1 to 3. As it went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Amen? Do you understand? We live in a sin-cursed world. We're going to get sick. These bodies are going to decay. It doesn't mean that we've done something, some atrocity against God. Amen? And James goes on now in verse 16a. It says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now listen, if they had sinned, they should confess, which means be open, be frank, and uh, with a full confession. And look, unconfessed sin like envy, 
jealousy, bitterness, something we've done in the past, it can create, it can manifest itself somatically, can it not? It can eat away at us. It can really cause some damage to us in our physical health. So what he's saying is confess this. Get rid of it. And then you can free your, even your own body and mind from the torments that you have. Uh, listen to Proverbs 14.20. It says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Envy is a sin. And when we hold that stuff in, whether it's jealousy, bitterness, anger, or something we've done in the past, it's going to eat away at us. It will. Listen to David's words when he, um, when he didn't confess his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah in Psalm 32, 3 and 4. He says, When I kept silent, my bones become brittle and my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was drained as in the summer heat. When we hold on to unconfessed sin, it's whenever we want to draw close to God, the guilt. Or if we want to be in a situation, the fear or the envy or the bitterness wells itself up. So we want to confess it. We want to get rid of it. So what James is saying here, if there is unconfessed sin, confess it. Confess it. And why should we confess it one to another? First of all, listen carefully. If we sin against another individual, we want to go up to them, confess it, ask their forgiveness so that it's done. And Christians, if someone comes up, no matter what they've done, and they're humble in heart and penitent and ask your forgiveness, who are we to hold it back? If God for could forgive us for all that we've done, who are we to hold it back? If uh, a sin has affected the church, then we have to come up and confess it publicly. Lord forbid that if a pastor stumbles, he needs to get up in front of his congregation, confess it, ask their forgiveness so that it's out there and the church forgives him and they move on. Some of the problems is pastors aren't willing to do that. People in leadership aren't willing to do that. And we've seen ministries destroyed. If, our sin, uh, if we need support, this is so important, godly wisdom, accountability, and a struggle of sin, go to a brother, go to a sister that you trust and confess the they confide in. And they gird each other under in prayer, and they can go to, listen, man, I'm having a rough time with this. I'm wrestling with the sin again. And they can pray with each other. So you go to somebody that you can confide in. Build that relationship with someone you trust, all right? And after we confess to the Lord, if we're still feeling guilty, we can go to someone we trust and say, look, I confessed it, but I'm still feeling it. And what do they do? They gird you under and give you the assurance through the word of God, your sins are forgiven. Let it go. Let it go. God loves you. He forgives you. This is what it says in the Word. So we can confess one to another for these various reasons. Yes? Confession of sin is essential to our walk. And it's powerful to turn from sin, is it not? If I know that I'm going to have to go before the Lord and confess my sin, I really don't want to sin against Him. If I'm telling Him I love Him, I want to keep myself from sin. Do we sin on a daily basis? Yes. But if it's a blatant, in my own strength, choosing to sin, or... If I have to confess it to somebody else, it's going to be a little deterrent for me to do that sin, or right? Because you don't want to go to somebody and start pouring your guts to them. And with that said now, James goes on and states a spiritual principle along with the biblical example of the power of prayer and encompasses all we've been discussing. Let's first look at the spiritual principle. It's found in verse 16b of James chapter 5. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Hallelujah. Praise God. And I know there, there are some real strong prayer warriors. And that woman prays. Sister Joan, who is now kind of shut in, she's a prayer warrior. I have known some dynamic prayer warriors over the years. Amen? I know others that I could look out, and I know they're prayer warriors, praying day by day. So praise God. So look at, family, the prayer is powerful and effective, right? Look at this, because the person is in a right relationship with the Lord. First of all, they're positionally righteous. They put their faith in Christ. Their sins are covered. They're justified. They're in a relationship with the Lord. And, and they're practically righteous, which means they're walking the walk. They're living the life. They're living as unto the Lord and keeping their focus on Him. So they're practically righteous and positionally righteous. So their prayer is what? Powerful and effective. Amen? And what they're doing, they will pray within God's will because he, they know that his will is the best for the situation. They're not praying their own will or the person's will. They're praying God's will. So they know they're in line with the Lord. And we could be bold and actually say that because they're praying in God's will, then that prayer will be answered. And why? Because it's God's will. All right? 
And look at the biblical example James gives in verse 17 and 18. It says, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed in the heavens. Read that passage in 1 Kings 18. The main point, Elijah was a man just like us. But he was a man who sought after God. He was positionally righteous and practically righteous. So when he prayed, his prayer was powerful and effective. Amen? The prayer of faith, again, originated and began with God. The rain was held back by God, and the rain came because of God's will to let it rain again. Elijah was just the instrument being used by God. He was a practically righteous, positionally righteous, and the Lord came to him and said, I'm going to hold back the rain. Three years go by, he says, I'm going to bring the rain. So he could go and pronounce that. Amen. Listen to 1 Kings 18.1. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. And then we look at verses 42 and 45. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, put his face to the, between his knees, Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and his servant went. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with the clouds, the wind rose, and a heavy rain began to fall on the ground. It was Elijah's communion with God that God used him, said, this is what I'm going to do so he could pray that prayer of faith and go to Ahab and say, I'm stopping the rain, but now the Lord says the rain is coming again. And both happened exactly as the prophet said because he was in line with the will of God. Amen? He did not operate under his own authority or will, but heard from God and prayer and declared what God would do. Amen? It's the prayer of faith. And finally... In concluding verses of his epistle, James will give us instruction about how to seek the Lord in order to be led by him so as to help a wandering brother or sister get back on track. Again, to pray for them. We pray for them. Let's look at this hypothetical situation that we, he gives when a person gives off the narrow road. And it's found in verse 19. Look at it. It says, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should... Bring that person back. Listen carefully. If a brother or sister wanders from the truth, from the word of God, for walking the walk with the Lord, we have the responsibility to go after that lost sheep. Do you hear me? As brothers and sisters in Christ, as they have brothers and sisters in the local assembly, we are to go and look at somebody who's a sinner. Please go look in the mirror and judge that person first. We're supposed to go after them in love to bring them back and restore them into right relationship with the Lord and right relationship with the fellowship. Amen? Listen to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, gently, but watch yourselves. Well, you may be tempted. Tempted to do what? Judge them. To judge them like, oh boy, look what this guy or gal has done. We're to carry each other's burdens, and this way you fulfill the law of Christ. We don't judge. We go and try to bring them in to restore them. And let's look at the hypothetical response. James writes this. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Listen carefully. The work of restoring a wandering brother or sister will result in two things. Save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's a beautiful passage of Scripture. And listen to what saved from death. It can mean two things. First of all, actual physical death. Because if a person continues in that lifestyle, do we see how many overdoses are out there? Do you see how many drunk driving accidents are out there? Do you see what sexually transmitted diseases can do to a person? When people go into sinful lifestyles and choices, it can kill you, plain and simple. It can kill you. So it can save you from that. And if the person doesn't repent, Sooner or later, what happens to them, the Lord could bring judgment on them, and they die. And they die. That's just the way it is. Listen to Psalm 32, 1 to 5. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit is no deceit. 
When I kept silent, this is David, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Amen. He was restored. Psalm 51, 8, 9. Let me hear the joy and gladness that the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. David was holding that all in until Nathan came to him and said, you are the man. And when he confesses that sin, what a release. Were there consequences? Absolutely. But David was now free from the bond of guilt and all those things that would happen as a result of holding that in. And the second meaning of this phrase could imply spiritual death and eternal separation from God. And you ready? I covered my bases. If you're a Calvinist, you would say he was never really saved. If you're an Armenian, you say he lost his salvation. He forsook his salvation. Either one is spiritual death and ending up in a lost eternity. So however you want to look at it from an Armenian point of view, Calvinist point of view, you get to the same place both ways. Amen? We don't want to forfeit or say we were saved or never really were saved and started walking in a sinful pattern of behavior and end up in a lost eternity. Amen? Listen to Second Peter. We're almost there, 20 to 23. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were in the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to his vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to a wallowing in the mud. And personally, I won't get into how I feel, but it says that they knew the righteousness that comes by faith, and they decided to go back into the other lifestyle. Listen carefully. This is what we hope for. When we go to a brother or sister of sin, has gotten off the path. We're hoping for restoration. Do you hear me? Restoration for their soul that they would come back and serve the Lord Jesus, come back to the fellowship, come back to where they would find the strength and the fellowship to go on in there. It will cover over a multitude of sins. What that means when they come back to the Lord and confess, God washes them white as snow. White as snow. He doesn't remember our sins anymore as far as the east is from the west. And we wouldn't have this promise in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from what? All unrighteousness. John was writing this to believers. In Jeremiah 31, 34, see it says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Restoration. That's what God wants. So we go after the wandering brother or sister to bring them back into the fold. To get right with God. To let them know the Lord still loves them. Whatever they've done, they're forgiven so that they come back. So in conclusion, look, there are two last points that James wants to teach us in this, his epistle. We ought to be people of integrity, that our word should be our word, that we don't have to make an oath because people know that when we say yes, it's yes, no, it's no. We're to be people of the truth and follow the embodiment of truth, Jesus Christ. Amen? And we're supposed to be prayer warriors. It sh there should be nothing that gets in our way, hinders us for finding a time to pray, a long time to pray with the Lord and to come corporately together in prayer. And part of that prayer is our time in praise and worship where we exalt him and lift him up and thank him for all that he's blessed us with. Amen? So in conclusion of this wonderful epistle, I've stated in the past that Paul's epistle to the Romans, in our study, we've seen all wonderful things in James how to persevere through the tests and trials of life, how to deal with difficult people, all these different issues in, in James that teach us how to live practically as Christians. But I believe the greatest thing is found in James chapter 1, and it comes down to this. Be not just hearers of the word, be doers of the word. So out of James's whole epistle, all these things that he taught us, he's telling us as Christians now that I've shown you, Put them into practice. Put them into practice. That's real Christianity. When God touches our heart with a principle that we take it, we meditate on it, and we look to put it into practice in our lives. And it's going to be challenging. It may even make no sense, but we do it because it's God's word. Amen? Amen. Family, we can hear God's word. 
We can even understand it. But if we don't put it into practice because of our love for him and obedience to him, it's fallen on deaf ears. It's just fallen on deaf ears. Oh, wonderful sermon, hopefully. And then, but if you don't put it into practice, it's just fallen on deaf ears. It shouldn't just be only absorbed by our senses. It should be absorbed into our lifestyle. Do you hear me? The Father's purpose is to mold us into the image of his Son. So my prayer for us, what we have learned and taken from this letter, we put into practice. Why? To bring glory and honor to our Savior, to become more like Christ, so as to be a better witness to those around us. Amen? But in order for that to happen, it starts right there. It starts at the cross of Christ. Because the only way you can live this life is by humbling yourself before the Savior and saying, I am a sinner, I've sinned against you, and I need your redemption. I need the covering of your blood to wash me white as snow. And at that very moment, when we pray that prayer, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, as the Word tells us. We're born again, new creations in Christ, with the power to live the kind of life that Christ wants us to. We're empowered to live that kind of life. But it all starts with a relationship with the Lord and a desire within our own hearts to be molded into the image of Christ, to not thwart the power and plan of the Spirit of God and His work in our life. We can say no. He's a gentleman. We should surrender. We've sang the song, I surrender all. We should surrender and look to be molded into His image to be made more like Christ. Amen? And if you're not here this morning and you haven't put your faith in Christ, let today be the day of salvation because it's the only way that you can draw close to God, be in a right relationship with God, and be in a right relationship with others because you're doing it according to the principles of the one who created all things. Amen? Amen. So with that said, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for how you moved upon the Apostle Paul, James, the Gospel writers, Lord, the writer of Hebrews. Lord God, we just thank you that you moved upon these men to pen the words that we have in the New Testament that we can learn of you. I thank you, Lord, how you moved upon James and all the practical points of application that he has made in his letter so that we can not only, by faith, through your grace and your spirit, be saved, but we can also live practically as Christians, becoming more like Christ. And Lord, we thank you. Help us to take from what this man has taught us in your word, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, and live it. Help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. Lord God, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you for our salvation. And we look forward, Holy Spirit, to how you're going to mold us, how you're going to change us, how you're going to use us for your glory and honor and for a witness to the lost. And we just praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. So with that said, let's just praise the Lord one more time this morning and go out and be the disciples and servants of